Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel, and the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is prophet in Israel. So Naaman came, came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent to the messenger, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Ebana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, my father, it is great, a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. He was clean. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Uh, so normally during this time, uh, either Andy or myself would be leading us in our uh, Lord's Prayer, but this time we actually have... Uh, Steve Brakey, who's going to be leading us through that. We've mentioned from the beginning that we really wanted to make this a congregational effort and not just something that the two of us did. So first week, we're uh, putting our money where our mouth is. So uh, Steve, why don't you come on up? In Luke 11 and Matthew 6, Jesus instructs his disciples about how to pray. Those verses are what we call the Lord's Prayer. He told them, Pray like this, but he did not say to pray this prayer specifically. Many interpret his instructions as a template or model rather than as a specific prayer we should all pray. Therefore, we are doing a series of prayers, as Andy and John have mentioned, based on the Lord's Prayer, attempting to do what Jesus instructed his, his disciples to do. And in that spirit, now let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Heavenly Father, you are the author of all that has ever been or ever will be. Through your word, you spoke everything into existence, including the stars, the planets, 
all the animals, and even us. May we be forever grateful to you for your creation and ever in awe of your power. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Lord God, help us and guide us to do your will here on earth. May we become your presence to our loved ones, our friends, to those with whom we work, and with those we meet on a daily basis. Let us comfort those who are afflicted with illness and those who are in despair. Help us to bring peace and love to our communities so that your kingdom is known wherever your adopted children dwell. Give us this day our daily bread. In your love, you, Lord, have given us food to sustain us. We acknowledge that without your beneficence, we could not exist. We also acknowledge that without your spiritual food, we would be without hope. Please provide us with all that we need to be your image bearers. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. As your son Jesus told his disciples, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Father, please grant us a forgiving attitude that we might have hope for your forgiveness. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Through your spirit, give us strength to avoid seeking our own personal gain and pleasure at the expense of others. Grant us discernment to see evil where it hides and help us to avoid entanglement with those who are your enemies. As you delivered your people from Egypt, you have brought us from the darkness of pain, suffering, and helplessness. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So there's two stories that I'd like to kind of be the backdrop for our message today. Uh, the first one we already read, and the second one we'll get to in a little bit. Both of these stories, I think, are really compelling. They speak a great deal of faith, which is our big topic for tonight. And I love them especially because they both kind of stick out in their respective narratives. They, they kind of represent someone who's an outsider in their community, they're not really someone you'd expect to be where they are or receiving the grace that they get. And yet, it's just kind of where they end up. And so the first story is the one that we just read, and it's the story of Naaman the Assyrian. Uh, it's probably one of my favorite stories in the Bible. 
Uh, Naaman, unlike most individuals in the Old Testament, which many of us know to be the story of Israel, uh, Naaman is not an Israelite. In fact, he's far from an Israelite. He is an Assyrian, and Assyria was uh, one of the like most like bitter rivals with Israel throughout their history. In fact, about a hundred years in the future from where Naaman stands. Uh, the, the, the empire of Assyria would essentially descend on Israel and just crush the northern 10 tribes and lead them into a, a period of great suffering and oppression for them. But even, even then, even 100 years in, in the present, Syria, Assyria and Israel were not friends. They were not kind to each other. They saw each other as military rivals. Naaman was an emperor, and even the passage that we read said that he was a man of valor, that he was a, he was a strong man, he was a courageous man. He was, you know, your Patton, your MacArthur, your, your tough, strategically-minded military man. Naaman had a problem, though, which was that he had contracted leprosy, which you can imagine can cause a lot of complications for him. It's a painful disease. It's also one that tends to isolate, tends to cause others, even in your own space and circle, to look at you as an outsider. And now Naaman, being in Assyria, he, they have their gods that they worship. They certainly don't worship the God of Israel. So you can imagine that probably over time, uh, Naaman had prayed to his own gods, had visited his own temples and priests asking for healing and had come up empty-handed. So interestingly, Naaman has, uh, his, his wife has a slave girl and she was actually uh, a captive that was taken from Israel. And so Naaman, as he's, you know, just thinking, gosh, dang, I don't want to have leprosy. This is the worst. His wife's slave uh, woman, slave girl, I don't know the proper term for that in modern day, uh, says, oh, well, I bet you if you went to Israel, the prophet could knock that out in a second. And so he, he agrees and he decides to, to venture down. And so he goes, he gets permission from his king to cross the border into Israel. He visits Elisha, Elisha's messenger, um, tells him to, to wash in the Jordan River seven times and it would cure his leprosy. And he agrees, he does it, and his leprosy is healed. And so he goes back to Assyria, convinced that there is no God in all the earth but Israel. Now, when we think of the term faith, faith, it, it can conjure up a lot of ideas in our heads. It sounds like a very religious term, and that's, and that's fair. You know, it is a religious term. But sometimes when terms sound overtly religious, there comes this connotation of like, oh, well, to truly have faith, you have to have this maybe level of like pious, like contemplative, like you have to like attain a certain level to really have faith. It seems like in some ways, like it could even be inaccessible. Because I mean, like, I think most of us would agree, if not all of us here, the, the professing Christians here, would agree that to be a Christian, all you have to do is to put faith in God or put faith in Christ. Like, faith is the key word. But I think even for some, that idea of faith is like, well, what if my faith isn't 
like proper enough? What if the motivations behind my faith are sometimes a little misguided? Or what if I have a lot of faith some days and I have a lot less faith on other days and so it kind of tends to come and go? Is there still room for me with my faith that's kind of ugly and kind of filled with doubt and, you know, struggles quite a bit? If faith is all I need, what hope do I have if my faith is weak? Maybe the question that some of us ask. And that's why I wanted to illustrate the story of Naaman. Because one of the reasons I love this story so much is because by all accounts, it's kind of a mess. It's, it's like there, there's so many things within this story that really aren't going the way that they're supposed to. So first off, uh, Naaman being a general means that when the king of Israel gets the letter that says, hey, uh, it's the king of Assyria here. I know, I'm sure this probably looks a little uncomfortable, but hey, I just want you to know I'm sending a general into your country. Not a big deal, not a big deal. He's just coming to talk to a prophet. Like, literally, the king of Israel tears his garments because he thinks that war is happening. He thinks this is the start of an invasion, and so he freaks out. And so Elisha, the prophet, has to be like, no, no, it's chill, it's chill, relax, relax. And so eventually, Naaman is allowed into the country. He goes, he walks, I imagine this has to be days, if not weeks of travel. He ends up outside the door of the prophet Elisha, the dude with the big reputation of like, this guy's the healer, this guy's the boss, he knows what he's doing. And Elisha doesn't even go outside to greet this guy. And he knows he's coming. Elisha sends a messenger from his house and says, oh, uh, go tell him to wash in the Jordan River seven times. So he doesn't even choose to talk to him. The messenger does that. Naaman hears this and immediately is almost like, I'm just going to give up then. Like, in his mind, he's like, if all I'm supposed to do is take a bath, I could have washed myself in a better river than all the bum rivers here in Israel. And interestingly, like, one of the commentaries I read was like, yeah, we can confirm there's better rivers in Syria than in Israel. So (laughs) it's cool to get, you know, a little historical backing there. But finally... So, so Naaman's about to just go home. He's not about to do any of this stuff. It actually takes, again, one of his servants to say, look, we came this far. Like, the, the river's, like, right there. Look, just, just do what you have to do, and, and, maybe, and maybe it'll work. Maybe it's worth, it's worth the effort. And so Naaman begrudgingly, angrily, and selfishly agrees, goes to the river, washes himself one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. And it says that when he came up the seventh time, his skin was like the flesh of a young child. Like that's how thoroughly his, he had been healed from his leprosy. That probably better than he was before is how thorough he was healed. And so what I love about this story is that Um, the king of Israel freaks out for no reason. Elisha, for for whatever reason, is very passive and just kind of decides to send someone else to do his job. Naaman felt like he was entitled to just like a quick prayer and a healing. He wasn't expecting to make another field trip. 
Naaman's intentions are selfish. He's angry. He's begrudging. Everything in this story is messy and wrong and misguided, except for the healing, except for God's response to this childlike faith. This was a clumsy, borderline selfish, and very childlike faith. And the kindness of God did not hide his face from him. Now, I remember uh, when I first started calling myself a Christian or when I started taking my faith seriously or whatever phrase you want to use for that. I was 15. I would love to tell you guys right now that when I came to Jesus that I was like, Lord, I am pierced through with conviction for my sins. And out of your glory, Lord, I wish to offer my life that I'd be restored to the sanctification of true life, true humanity through Jesus. Like, and I didn't say any of that stuff. I, 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 I'll tell you exactly why. When I was younger, when I was a kid, I was incredibly, incredibly fearful. I remember being, when I was younger, like single digits age, I was always afraid of going to bed. I, I, I was adamant that I needed to go to bed before my parents did because I, I was in the first bedroom in my hallway, right by the kitchen across from it, and my kitchen had big, you know, those big, long fluorescent lights. And as long as I could go to bed before my parents did, the kitchen light was on, and I had this nice stream of light into my bedroom, and I felt fine. But if I couldn't fall asleep before my parents did, they would go to bed, they'd cut the lights off, I would sit in this suffocating, pitch black darkness, and I would just lay in bed, just imagining all the possibilities of what could be coming to torture me that night. And it was literally everything. It was everything from, from burglars to, to supernatural things like ghosts. You know, I was nine when 9-11 happened, so now I'm thinking terrorists are going to fly something into my house. Just all these un, just ridiculous fears that I had as a child. And I carried a lot of those. I think in a lot of ways, I still struggle with just irrational fear at times. So when I was 15... Coming to Jesus for the first time, I would love to say that I was super convicted of my sin, that I saw how desperately I needed God and I came to him out of love, but that's not true. What happened was the thought crossed my mind that maybe because I thought about death constantly as a child, which is just, just not ideal, I was terribly afraid that one day or one night even I was going to die and I was going to stand before God, not right with him, and he was going to cast me out, and I wasn't, I wasn't prepared for whatever that was going to look like. So I, I fell on my knees, and I said, God, whatever you want, take it. It's yours. Please, just, like, let's sign the contract. Like, I'll sign for the extension. Like, please, just whatever it takes for me to get that stamp that says that I'm cool. Like, I, I can't do this by myself anymore, Lord. And that was why I came to Jesus for the first time. But the beautiful thing, and I, I, I legitimately, like, I don't think I place as much emphasis in my own theology on everyone needs to have this perfect, like, moment of testimony. I actually am not sure if I vibe with that anymore. But I feel very confident saying that I really think this was when, like, I received the Holy Spirit, when, when I felt God smile upon me. And it's because with that clumsy, ugly, borderline, selfish, childlike faith, 
God did not turn his face from me. I had a conversation with a friend a couple of nights ago. He was having one of those nights you hate, just where uh, all of life's regrets just seem to be swelling and bubbling up and you just, you're, you're, you're sensitive to every negative thing around you. You're thinking about every mistake you've ever made, every uh, experience of shame you've ever had. He's feeling unloved. He's feeling like God doesn't care about him, like the people around him doesn't care about him. And, and so we're talking and I, you know, I, I listened, 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 let him talk, let him talk, let him talk. And when he gave me just this tiny window, I shared with him. And I shared with him the second story that I want to tell you guys tonight. And it's the story of the thief on the cross. Um, I'm sure many of you guys are familiar, but for those who aren't, we're going to jump into it a little bit. Now, when Jesus was being crucified, he was positioned between two thieves who were also being crucified. Um, as they're propped up there, slowly suffering and dying, one of the thieves looks over at Jesus and basically just starts making fun of him. Starts saying like, oh, yeah, this is the God guy, right? Yeah. Oh, hey, Jesus, if you're really God, why don't you, why don't you pull yourself off the cross, pal? Like, it just seems like a bad place for a God to be. Just, you know, hurling insults at Jesus. And, the, and Jesus doesn't say a word in response, but the other thief across from him just says, hey, man, like, we're dying because we're thieves. <laughs> we're dying because we broke the law. But Jesus, there, I don't even know if he knew his name, honestly. But he said, but this man has done nothing wrong, and yet he's still dying. And then he looked to Jesus and he said, when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And that's just like, like I, I, I wrote this down. I don't even know if that guy knew Jesus' name. He doesn't say it. I don't know if he was Jewish, if the idea of the kingdom was something that he was raised with and discipled into his life, or if it was just a word he heard maybe moments before his crucifixion. He had no profound display of obedience. He had no great offering to the kingdom of God. He just had a hope and a recognition that Jesus was innocent, and that he was going to his kingdom. And with that tiny, tiny little grain of faith, Jesus gave him the greatest promise maybe written in the Bible, which is truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. My reason for telling my friend this story was this. Here's a guy who truly squandered everything in his life. Here is a man who had literally no opportunity to live out the potential of what he had to give to the world, but more importantly, what he had to give to God. He was a convicted criminal. He was sentenced to die in a method of incredible pain, but also incredible embarrassment. He had failed all of his potential. And yet, with this tiny little morsel of faith, he received the sweetest words that a dying man could hear. That although he had walked his entire life without Jesus, Jesus was promising to walk with him from this life into the next. Because unknown to him, every sin, every crime, every faithless moment that this thief had ever experienced 
was being paid for and was being covered by the man dying next to him. So here's, here's my first big encouragement for uh, this evening. Don't be ashamed of tiny, ugly, maybe a little selfish faith. Don't be ashamed of that. Certainly don't let it hold you back from pursuing a God who has tremendous love for you. Another quote from uh, the individual I quoted for our adoration was, if God is good to the soul that seeks him, then what is he to the soul that finds him? If God is patient, if God is kind, if God is good and, and willing for those who are just seeking him out, then how much greater is that experience for someone who has said, today I put faith in the God who loves me. These thoughts of, oh, I mean, I would try if I was good enough, if my track record wasn't as bad as it is, uh, you know, if my faith was more pure, if I wasn't so darn selfish, like all those thoughts are demonic, like legitimately demonic. Those are not godly thoughts by any means. You think you're sparing God something uh, difficult to deal with by not drawing closer to him? That's, that's, that's a demon thought, dude. Like that's not, there's nothing valuable about that. Because the thing about faith is faith doesn't place the burden on the person putting the faith. It's the recipient of the faith. The responsibility of, like the, the great burden here is not on the person who holds faith to be perfect. The responsibility is the one on whom who is calling people, have faith in me, trust in me. We have to trust that God is good enough to keep us, and he is. We have to trust that God is loving enough to love us, and he is. It's not you who's strong enough to keep yourself mighty and upright, but it's God who has promised to make you new. It's not you who can love yourself enough to change and love yourself enough to tolerate all the difficult things you put yourself through, but it's God who loves you and forgives your mistakes. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Because again, if God is good to the soul that seeks him, how much kinder, how much sweeter, how much nearer will he be to the soul that finds him? I realized I kind of wrote my sermon in... Uh, almost like two acts of a play. And so uh, we could now consider that the first act. I did not plan with Mike any kind of intermission, but if you would like to retrieve some popcorn or grab a soda pop, feel free to do so now. Okay. So here's my next point. Now is when we consider the differences. Now the question should be, well, this is, this is the birth of faith. This is the beginning of faith. That's Naaman. That's the thief on the cross. But there's differences between us and these two individuals, and we have to point them out. Naaman, for example, uh, he returns to Assyria dedicated to worship uh, the God of Israel for the rest of his life, which is a beautiful thing. But we have to consider Naaman probably never heard or visited or even saw a prophet again for the rest of his life. 
The chances of him just recrossing the border and just holding a Bible study with a prophet, it's probably pretty unlikely. So his whole connection with the community and children of God and the word of God, it, it may have dried up right there. And then you think the thief on the cross, he was gonna die within moments, maybe hours. His, like all, both of these men had some severe limitations to what their faith could do. But for most of us, that's not the position that we find ourselves in. Most of us, as we can see literally right here, we come to church. We belong to a faith community. Many of us have Bibles that we read. Many of us pray or even practice a number of different like uh, spiritual disciplines. We're, we're not in the same camp totally as these two men. And so the question we have to ask is, if this is where faith begins, then where does faith go from here? So I, I want to say, just so it doesn't look at all like I'm trying to contradict what I was saying earlier, the faith of a child is a beautiful faith. It's literally what Jesus says our faith should be like, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not trying, I, I have no intention of negating where I was coming from before. But my thought here is this. The thing about having faith like a child is that children grow. If a child never got taller or never got stronger, never learned things, never got wiser, never learned from their mistakes, you would assume that maybe this, this child had some kind of a disorder. It would, you'd think there's something unhealthy happening here. And so while having the faith of a child is tremendous, it's a beautiful thing, that to remain stagnant and ungrowing that is actually very dangerous. See, faith is a living thing. It's, it's connected to this uh, breathing and growing relationship that we have with our creator. If you had a friend for several years and after, let's say, five years of friendship, you, you kind of reflect and you realize that this person doesn't trust me any more than he did when we first met. It doesn't mean he's not your friend, but it might mean that, oh, this may not be the deepest friendship, and this guy's probably keeping me at an arm's length, too. So we can conclude that it's not just beneficial for faith to grow, but it's actually necessary for faith to grow. And so now the question we have to deal with is how? Now, the, the, the thoughts I have here, I, I, I feel like I'm probably going to have to nuance a little bit because they might sound a little, uh, well, we'll just see how they sound here. Now, many of us know that the Bible says faith without works is dead. I think we all, many of us agree with that. I mean, it's, it's, it's biblical. The problem that I occasionally see with that approach is that what it does is it kind of splits faith and works into these two separate categories. And then it says, okay, let's see. So faith is, is intellectual. It's mental. Faith is what you believe. So I believe uh, God is good, God loves me, God says not to murder people, etc. And then my works are uh, practical. They're the things that I do. 
So while I believe all these things, then I also do all these things. And so with my faith, I will believe and I will look at God and I say, I believe you, God. I believe that you are the greatest name in the world and that when I die, something else is happening. And we believe. And then with our actions, we say, and now with my actions, I will give money to people sometimes when I feel like it's responsible and I will uh, be nice and I'll forgive and I'll apologize and all those things. So we have boom and then we have boom. And I want to just paint a scenario for you to see how, how I can see a little bit of an issue in that approach. Like imagine just some random, uh, like I... I had a person in mind when I was thinking of this. Imagine just like some 20-something dude, uh, just your average 20-something dude, not Zach, uh, becomes a Christian. Um, so let's say he, he doesn't have a lot of experience with, with Christianity, so he's trying this for the first time, but he really wants to get into it. And so he starts by doing all the things he feels like Christians are supposed to do. He starts going to church every Sunday. He uh, buys a Bible for the first time, and he reads it sometimes. He, uh, he, he says he prays before dinner. He just kind of starts, excuse me, doing all the things that he sees Christians doing and just kind of just takes all these random actions and behaviors and, and incorporates them into his arsenal. And then he starts looking at his personal life, and he's like, ah, you know, uh, whenever I go out with my friends, I, I tend to drink like really, really heavily and just kind of like, you know, I go way too hard. I think that the Christian thing to do would be to chill on that, so I'm going to work on it. And so he does. And then he thinks, uh, you know, I've got a really bad temper problem. Uh, I get mad at people. I take things personally. I lash out. I cuss. I yell, etc. And I don't think that's a very good Christian thing to do. And so he says, I'm going to work on that. And so he does. And then he thinks, you know, uh, I tend to like, you know, kind of hook up with ladies that I meet occasionally, and I'm starting to think maybe that's not what Christians should do either, so I should probably work on that. And so he works on that. And then before you know it, he's just got this list and list and list of all these things that he's telling himself he's supposed to do because he's a Christian now. Now, I I I'm framing a problem, but again, I'm going to nuance this because I don't want, you know... I don't want rocks getting thrown at me in the parking lot when I'm trying to leave later. Um, don't get me wrong. This imaginary dude is right. The things that he's identified are good. What he's doing is he's learning the art of repentance. Repentance is Jesus uh, entering into our lives and correcting a lot of the things that aren't just uh, you know, morally bad but are also harmful for us. And repentance is good. He's learning that these, there are things that it's not just that Christians should do or shouldn't do, but he's learning there are things that God has not designed me for or they're not pleasing to God. And so he's starting to like edge away at those types of things. So I think that is valuable. I would say anybody who becomes a Christian, and I mean, honestly, all of us as Christians in our daily lives are responsible for just this constant flow of repentance. It's good. But here is the problem, though. This dude eventually just starts to think, gosh, dang, Christianity is just about a bunch of rules. It's just about doing stuff. 
Christianity is not about anything spiritual or anything divine or anything restorative. It's just about, it's just, it's just following rules. I might as well just join a social club. And so that's the area that I want to address here. Because when we think of repentance, repentance is us taking our, our former way of thinking and trying to conform to, a, to something that Jesus or something that God has called good or something that God has, has told us. And Jesus says that the greatest command is love. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and also love your neighbor. Now, I don't think that just fixing your actions is inherently unloving. I don't. I don't think that it's unloving I don't think that this guy is not loving God because he's just choosing to not do things that he's not supposed to do. But there is this sense of, is love truly being realized when Christianity is almost being boiled down to this like religious responsibility? And so I think like when we come to Jesus and we're seeking something from him, what is it that we're receiving or what is it that we're looking for? I read this week this quote that the reward of love is that you receive the thing that you love. The reward of love is that you receive the thing that you love. And so when you come to Jesus, let's say to get your life together, you might get your life together. You might, you might get a job. You might break an addiction. You might add some stability to your life, but you also might find that empty and, and tedious at times. When you come to Jesus looking for community, you may get community, and, and hopefully you do, but you may find that community is tough sometimes because community is people and relationships, and both of those things are difficult and occasionally suck. All of us are people and all of us are carrying different forms of baggage and have different needs and struggles and longings and expectations, which means that community can be a very messy and sometimes inconsistent thing. So if you're coming to Jesus looking for community, you might get it, but it also might not meet all the longings that you actually have. Or if you're 15-year-old me, you might come to Jesus because you're just tired of being afraid of the noises in the dark. And Jesus might help you with that. But then eventually you'll realize that there's more to life than just the hours of 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. when you struggled to sleep. And there's more fears out there that you're going to want him to be there for. Or even, and, and this might even be a more... A more uh, a more hot take, as the kids say. But if you come to Jesus strictly looking for repentance of a specific sin, because maybe it's, it's adding trouble to your life, or maybe it's bringing you a great deal of shame, you may get that repentance. But everything that we're loving Jesus for, anytime we're using Jesus as that means to an end, we're still going to end up not fully satisfied. And I, I've even realized that 
this can be complicated because God is the giver of great and beautiful gifts. I look at my life and I, I'm, I'm filled with gratitude, dude, like I am. I heard a, uh, a minister talking about how he had stepped down from ministry. No scandal, no affair, none of the muckety-muck, just had faithfully served for 10 years in ministry and stepped down and joined the church with his wife as a member. And he talked about how difficult that transition was for him. Because being a minister, you're literally the guy who gets to stand up and talk. You're often someone that people seek things from. Like there is something really fulfilling about, about the position that, that I have. And sometimes I worry that like I'm becoming too dependent on it that this is a thing that I'm almost loving too much. And so that can be the really sticky thing about this is that God is a gracious giver and he lavishes his gifts on the people that he loves. But if we start loving God just for the things that he's giving us, then there's the fear that like, well, what, what's my heart towards God going to be when that thing that I have goes away? And that's what I think, you know, that's, that's how I try to challenge myself. Things start falling apart here and I'm not happy. Like, do I still see God as good? If I, uh, when my car breaks down, when the things that I love and enjoy and the things that make my life feel like they have meaning, when all those things fall apart, all those things that I put some semblance of love and longing into, when I lose that, does my heart towards God turn sour? I mean, it's just like, like imagining you're, you're in a relationship, many of you are, whether it's a spouse or a significant other or whatever the case may be. There is a certain sense where you want to be loved not for the, the, the looks or the humor or the conversation, but where you actually want to be loved for the self and for the being that you are, not just the attributes that you have. Like God is literally the same way. We can love God for his gifts. We can love God for the attributes, but truly the love that fulfills is to love God for God. And so when I said earlier that the reward of love is the object of the love, when we love God for certain things, then all those things we can get and not be truly satisfied. But when we love God for God, what we receive is God. And that's the most precious thing. Because God is, like I said, the giver of all these good gifts. He is the, the comforter of our souls. He is the one who takes our fears from us. He's the one that gives us peace beyond our understanding He's the one that gives us community in the church, but also the community of his perfect and unbroken presence. When we love God for God, what we get is God. Because Naaman got what he was looking for. He, his skin was made clean. He could have walked back to Assyria, gone right back to things, just as normal, no problem. But Naaman's affections weren't killed 
when he got what he wanted. He actually had an entirely new experience of affections, and it was towards a God who was kind enough to show him his face. And I love that random little footnote of the story that Naaman asks Elisha. So after he gets healed, before he goes back home, Naaman asks Elisha for two mule loads of dirt to take back home. And it's just like, what, what, why is that happening? The reason he's doing that is because he sees Israel as holy ground and he wants to return home and worship the God who cares for him on the ground where he lives. Like that was the devotion of someone whose baby small faith was responded to with grace. And so the key to growing in faith is not just behavior modification and learning to be a better person. Those things will come, and they ought to. And this also isn't uh, uh, saying that just because your affections are divorced from your actions that you shouldn't still change your actions. You absolutely should. If some dude I'm, I'm talking to it tells me, yeah, man, I mean, uh, I raise my voice at my wife quite a bit, but uh, I mean, I just get mad. I just feel like yelling. I'm not going to be like, oh, well, I mean, as long as you're feeling it, right? Like, no. <laughs> I would say, well, dude, unfortunately, your feelings are wrong, and until you can change them, you need to stop doing what your actions are doing right now. So this, I'm not, by no means am I trying to say that, that affections have to precede a change in action, but I'm saying it has to be together. What God longs for is that internal and that external change and cleansing. So again, the key to growing in faith is not learning to be a better person and to stop doing bad things and start doing good things. The key to growing in faith is learning to love the God who you've put faith in and also learning to love the God who deeply and richly loves you. Because, actually, no, I didn't like that line. (laughs) Sorry. Because one thing that's interesting is that uh, about 700 years after this point in history, There'd be another man who would be going into the Jordan River to be washed, and it was Jesus. And uh, the cleansing of Naaman was primarily just to clean him of his physical deformities, but it also renewed his heart to love God. And Jesus was all about fulfilling all of that. And so if, we, if you want to think like, oh, well, John, my life is just, is, just, is just rough right now. It's hard for me to think where God's love is. Well, the church has been coming together for 2,000 years all across the world in thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of churches and cities and places all over the world to remember that the great high points of love that God has shown to each of us was the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus. Because Jesus, being divine, being holy and being perfect, descended to this state of humanity, subjected himself to time 
illness, and everything else. And then he was killed by evil men. Evil men who shared the same heart that we share. And so how do we conclude something like this? Well, we remember what we remember every Sunday, which is the love of Jesus, the cleansing, faith-giving, faith-growing love of Jesus and his sacrifice. And it's something we do every single week. We break bread, we drink wine, and we remember the greatest act of love that one person can show another, which is to suffer for another person's well-being. Because it's Jesus who loved the outsider like Naaman, and it's Jesus who loved the criminal like the thief. He descended, he suffered, and he died. And now we can celebrate the life that we have. So now we're going to celebrate that in, uh, in three ways. The first is uh, Mike's going to come up. He's going to lead us in some more worship songs. We can sing those together. The second is through giving. Um, we encourage just, you know, we, we encourage all believers to be faithful givers because that's really what the Bible says. We want to be faithful and generous givers with all that we have. Our, our kind of plea as, as mission leaders is, if mission is meaningful to you, if you believe in what we're doing and, and, and what we're doing for our community, like here, but also our community there, please consider giving. Um, that, would, that would really just help us do what we're doing in a really profound way. And then the last way that we're gonna worship is through the Lord's Supper. So uh, we're gonna do a moment of confession for two minutes. Just take that time to speak to God confess to God. This is a great opportunity to not come up to the Lord's Supper with any, you know, unconfessed issues in your heart, but get, take this time to just really try to reconcile with him. And then afterwards, we can experience the love and the joy of forgiveness that he offers, and then come and dine with him at the Lord's Supper. So I'll pray for us. We'll have our two minutes of confession, and then uh, please consider joining at the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, um, God, I'm just grateful for, uh, yeah, a lot of things. I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for uh, all that you've shown me and all that I just get to think about and all that I just get to experience being um, a child of yours, and it's, it's beautiful. And God, I, I, I again think like I wants to treasure your gifts as much as they deserve to be treasured. But God, I also don't want to forget the giver. I want my love for you to be my love for you, not for the health that you give me, not for the wonderful people in my life, not for anything that I've gained. But may I love you that I would receive you, and may all of us do the same. So speak to us right now. Just tell us, uh, just bring to light something that we ought to confess. Um, maybe even not just an active sin, but just something that we didn't do. A time that we didn't think of you. A time that we didn't, and we weren't encouraged in you. We, a time of weak faith. We confess that before you, not because we want, you want us to fill us with shame or that you want to throw a hot iron over our heads, but because you love us and you'll forgive us. So may we experience that forgiveness. May we dine with you today. Just please help us to pray.